and welcome back to the third episode of the University of Alberta Financial Literacy Club podcast sponsored by TD, ATB, and Cube Investment Management. And today we're going to talk about investing. Hey everyone, so my name is Reese, and today we have a very special guest today. We have the head of equity research over at Cube Investment Management. We'd like to give a warm welcoming to Nick Reimer. Nick, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, my name is Nick Reimer. So born and raised in Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, kind of grew up mostly skiing, and going to school as most people would. Um, so I competed mostly in freestyle skiing. That took up a lot of my spare time. Uh, eventually made the transition over to university and slightly before my first year, um, I kind of got introduced to the portfolio manager out at uh, Cube Investment Management. And um, there was a deal made where if I completed what's called a uh, Canadian securities course, I'd be onboarded to the team and kind of the rest is history. So I've been working at Cube now for about the last two and a half years. It's uh, been really fun to watch the research team develop and obviously have my skills develop with it. Uh, so really looking forward to the conversation today. Yeah, that's great to hear. So let's start by kind of the most general question. A lot of people actually believe that investing is really complicated and not available to everyone. Is that really the case? And if an average person is interested in investing their money, how can they start? Yeah, no, totally. This is, this is something I'm so passionate about. So really, when you think about it, when you hear the word finance, you hear the word stock market to the average person, they get kind of scared. They're, they're a little overwhelmed. They don't necessarily know what's going on. And there's two parts there, in my opinion. The first part is there's kind of a failure of our public school system to actually teach how to reliably and uh, sufficiently invest your money. And also it, it's kind of, a, kind of a failure of the financial realm itself, right? Where these big academic kind of nerdy individuals that like to use these really big complicated words like uh, credit default swaps and collateralized debt obligations. And then to your average person, they're just gonna, they're gonna get really scared. <laughs> what, what does that mean? So my opinion, investing is really easy and it would truly only take an hour to teach a group of high school kids three things. First thing, what is the stock market? Second thing, just teaching one general financial uh, instrument, which we'll talk about later, an ETF. And then the third thing, how do I buy that ETF? So within an, uh, in an hour, I truly think, you know, your average high school kid could get exposure to the stock market and then earn a return that will allow them to have a comfortable retirement once they, you know, retire 60, 65. That's an awesome answer. We love that you're you're so passionate about finding ways to make it easy for, for young students to understand this. So I think the next question would be, how much of the income do you think these young individuals who are interested in investing should allocate towards putting it into the stock market, given that they could lose it all at any moment? Yeah, no, no, totally. That's a great question and a very common question that people will, uh, will ask. And you know, a lot of the things in, in, in finance, it's not black and white. You don't have a finite answer for it. So it's truly going to depend on, you know, your individual budget, right? Uh, my circumstances are way different than yours. Are you paying rent right now? Uh, do you have some credit card debt that you need to pay off? Uh, what's your, you know, discretionary level of spending? Some people really like to, you know, go eat out with their friends and whatnot. So that's going to definitely play a part in how much income you have left over. To actually put into the market and what people really do need to 
recognize is it is a luxury to have disposable income left over to invest in the stock market or some some other asset class, right? Like fixed income. So, you know, you have you have a, a situation right now in Canada and most of North America where most people are in credit card debt, right? So they don't have this luxury to actually invest in in the stock market. So let's take a perfect case scenario. Let's uh, well, let me just give you an example, actually. So often we'll tell clients, so say you're 20 years old and you want to retire around 65, that gives you 45 years to invest. Now, for each of those years, say on a monthly basis, you invest $100 into your TFSA, tax-free savings account, at a 11% rate of return, which is what the S&P 500 will talk about later as return on average over the last 50 years or so. That $100 that you're putting in on a monthly basis, at the time of your 65, that'd be $1.2 million. So when you frame it to, to somebody at the age of 20 or even, you know, a high school student, 17, 18 years, they get a little bit, you know, they're, they're like, wow, that's, that's a lot of money. So truly to have a successful and comfortable retirement, you really don't need to dedicate a large portion of your income once you get, uh, you know, past university and you're on salary, right? So it's up to you to create, I would say, a percentage of whatever your, your monthly income is. But again, it doesn't take much. $100 a month for 45 years, you can turn that into 1.2 mil. Wow, that's pretty impressive to hear what $100 a month can do. So when it comes to, we know, we all know risk is very important in finance. And when it comes to an individual's risk tolerance, how important is it? Can you tell our listeners why and how important is it? Yeah, so you you have, I, I guess you could say in finance, the meat is uh, your return. And then the bread that goes along with it is your risk. Everything that we do in finance is about your trade off between risk and return. So uh, we live in Edmonton, right? Everybody should be familiar with Calgary. It's 300 kilometers away. I could drive to Calgary in an hour if I drove 300 kilometers an hour, right? But does that necessarily mean I should do that? Well, no, right? You're putting everybody else on that road in danger. You could get a nasty speeding ticket, get your license pulled. It's really risky. And you can kind of put the same context in, into finance, right? You can make ab absorbent returns uh, doing and playing different games uh, and day trading, what have you, without getting into all this crazy jargon. But yeah, you see people earning thousand percents of, of returns on whatever strategies they're playing, but is it sustainable? Not necessarily. So your risk, is, uh, your risk tolerance is going to define how you invest. So the first thing that people need to understand is what is risk when it comes to an investment? Well, often you'll have academics coming out and saying standard deviation, right? It's the standard deviation, the volatility of that stock. Well, to your average person, what does that mean? Well, you can frame it in this way. So say you invest into a stock that's really risky. I could ask them, are you comfortable seeing that $1,000 you put into that stock go down 20% in any given year? If the answer is no, well, maybe you don't want to be so aggressive with your investing style. Maybe we want to add some other asset classes like fixed income uh, that are a little bit less volatile is, is what we could say. So once you're coming out of your, your, your investment journey, it's really important for you to ask yourself, Am I comfortable seeing a 20% drop, a 15% drop, a 10% drop in my portfolio in any given year? And your answer to that question is going to dictate where you put your money, what asset classes you put in your, uh, what, what, what money you put in your asset, uh, asset classes. So your risk tolerance is, is crucially important to how you invest. 
and, and I'll just I'll just give one more quick example to put it kind of a, a real life example in your head. So if you think back to the Great Depression of the 1930s and at the peak of the bubble right before the, uh, the markets crashed, say you had a million dollars invested in the market. The market dropped 80 percent. So that million dollars would be worth 200 grand. Right. You lost eight hundred thousand dollars technically if you sold out. So if you're not necessarily able to handle an $800,000 technical loss, then maybe you shouldn't be investing in 100% equities, right? Maybe you should diversify. It's a great answer. We love hearing how you're talking about what students really think about when it comes to investing, knowing that you could possibly lose 200 bucks on $1,000 in any given month or period of time. It, it really puts it into perspective what investing can do for an individual. Next, I'd like to ask you about registered accounts. Where should students deposit their money so that if they do happen to make money on their stock investments, it won't be taxed? Do you mind talking a little bit about the different registered accounts and what they're best used for? Yeah, totally. So uh, the main one that we're going to have access to as a student, right, we're not in full employment right now. So we don't necessarily have access to a registered retirement savings uh, plan, which is what they're called, where your employer will match a percentage of your contributions. The main one that you want to take advantage of right now, especially with uh, not necessarily, I'm, I, I know all students are in the same place, I can say this, we don't have a lot of disposable income. So we're not able to, you know, reach this crazy high contribution limit of an RSP. So the main one we want to be using is called a tax-free savings account. So that's a short form, you can call it a TFSA. If you say that on Wall Street, everybody would be like, wow, you're a smart kid. Um, so with the TFSA, the, the government allots for a certain amount of contribution each and every year. And the rule is, if I earn any gains on this investment, say I invested $1,000 into Apple stock, at the end of the year, I made a capital gain of $500. I'm not going to be taxed on that because it's in a tax-free savings account. So at, at, at this point in our life as a student, the contribution room right now is about $6,000 a year. I don't necessarily make $6,000 in excess a year to fully contribute that, that full contribution amount. So the best thing we can use is just if we have any disposable income left over, just toss it in your TFSA. Once you move on into a position where you're onboarded with a company and they're matching uh, your RSP contributions, which again is another kind of tax deferral account, then you can worry about that. But at the moment, the best strategy to do is just pop out your TFSA so you don't have to worry about any capital gains. Sounds great. Um, going back now to the talk about risk, you mentioned diversification. So just to make it a little more, more clear for our listeners that are not part of finance, what is diversification and what are some of the most common ways that you can diversify your portfolio? Yeah, totally. Uh, diversification. It's a big hot word that you'll hear in finance all the time. And all it basically is, is buying a lot of different things, buying a lot of different uh, stocks, buying a lot of different bonds uh, and getting into other, other asset classes, even like collectibles and get into volatility and it just gets all crazy and exciting. But at the root of it, what you're doing with diversification is you're eliminating or trying to lessen what the fancy word is, is called idiosyncratic risk. And all that word is, is essentially business specific risk. So let me frame it to you in this way. 
let's say I'm fully invested in Apple. I have $10,000 to my name. I toss it all in Apple. The idiosyncratic risk of investing in that stock is saying that Tim Cook is going to make a series of really poor investments that are then not going to allow them to meet their earnings expectations and thus have the stock price tank. Now, that's all business specific, right? That's not necessarily coming from the market, which um, yeah, I guess in academic terms, we can call systemic risk. So systemic risk is market risk, right? When COVID came out, everybody hurt, right? It was something that was unpredictable. We couldn't quantify. Everybody felt the pain of this big onset of COVID-19 with business shutting down, right? We can't necessarily diversify that away. You can get really fancy with derivatives, um, but uh, we won't necessarily go into that. But essentially, systemic risk is just going to be there. Diversification, though, is eliminating or trying to lessen this business-specific risk. That way, say, if Tim Cook uh, makes a series of bad investments. I'm also invested in a lot of other stocks through the CEOs. I made really good investments. So that way, that stock price appreciation has somewhat lessened or fully uh, mitigated uh, the depreciation of Apple stock. So the idea is that you want to get rid of banking on these CEOs' performance. That way, you just have kind of a portfolio that is a little bit more fortified, right? It's a little bit less risky because you're not putting all eggs in one basket. But it does get a little bit interesting once you start adding a lot of stocks, right? We'll, we'll stick to equities here. So there's actually a term called, uh, di how do you pronounce it? Diversification. It's kind of a hard word uh, <laughs> to pronounce. But what, what that basically says is it gets to a point where you add so many securities to your portfolio where the benefits of this risk return trade-off you're getting from diversification is worse. So what people also got to remember is there's transaction costs when you buy securities. When I buy a stock, the brokerage platform is going to take a little bit of a cut to facilitate that transaction. So say you have a, a portfolio made up of 200 securities, you're going to uh, be paying a lot of transaction costs to rebalance this portfolio. So according to academic literature and a few studies, the, the kind of sentiment is a around 30 securities in a portfolio, at least in an equity portfolio, is kind of your optimal um, uh, diversification uh, sort of scenario. But yeah, <laughs> that's that. That's great to hear. I mean, that's to me, that's a lot of stocks. I don't know if the average listener knows how much some stocks can be. You look at Tesla, it's over $600 a share right now, whereas there's some stocks that are trading for $12 to $15 a share. I think- yeah that diversification is a really handy tool to help individuals reduce their risk. Do you mind speaking a little bit towards what a brokerage account is and how these students can buy these stocks? Because it's a common misconception that it's very hard to obtain and not a lot of people know how to do it. So maybe if you could tell our listeners how they could go about buying these stocks and start making their returns. Totally. And, and again, this, this kind of ties into one of the the first failures I was talking about is just the financial industry posting this crazy amount of jargon that, that scares people off, right? They, they get kind of intimidated about what is a brokerage platform, right? Because that's kind of a big, scary word that nobody really knows what it means. So but let's start from the history. So right, why does fin uh, financial market start out? And let's fast forward kind of to the 20th century. If you wanted to buy a stock, you had to go to what was called a bucket house. So it was this little shop, this little house where there was a chalkboard posted up at the front of the room with all the, the stocks that were listed back in the day it was more so railways and commodities. And you would have somebody just 
writing the price for each that stock each day. And if you wanted to buy it, it'd be like an auction house. You, you'd raise your hand, you'd go up to the front desk and say, I want to buy one share of uh, CNR, right? For whatever it's trading at that day. So that was kind of a relatively intuitive process to get access to the stock market, but not necessarily as complicated as this brokerage idea. Moving forward, then we have uh, stock brokers, right? This is the Wolf of Wall Street era where I would call into a brokerage firm on Wall Street. I'd say, oh, I want to buy uh, shares of Apple. What's the price? They'd tell you the price. They'd take a little commission and you get your stock. Nowadays, it's way easier. It's literally a stock grocery store. And that's what you can think of a bro uh, brokerage firm as. So, I'm, uh, for example, I bank with TD. With TD, they have a web brokerage platform. That basically means I can log on to this quote unquote web brokerage platform. Once I'm on there, I can look up any stock I want to and just purchase it and it's in my account. So all the web brokerage platform is, is a place where you, the buyer, goes and accesses some seller for whatever stock you're looking for and you just complete the transaction. It's just a place where the transaction, the marketplace where the transaction is facilitated. Now to get access to this, all you need to do is call your bank. We'll give you some paperwork. You'll fill out, you know, toss some signatures on some pages, and you basically have access to the whole North American market stock exchange, which is great. Yeah, it's really impressive how things have become so much easier these days compared to the past. And investing and buying stocks is just a lot more accessible to an average individual. Now, one of the biggest questions that I personally have for you, Nick, is what are some of the investing tips and tricks that you can give to our listeners? You know, it doesn't have to be like a super huge secret of yours or whatever, but like some, you know, general things that you kind of follow and try to stick to when you're, you're investing yourself. Totally. Yeah. And that, that's the million dollar question, right? Who can find the the, the one tip that beats all tips and then you make millions of dollars, right? So the beauty of finance is it's just literally a bunch of games. There's so many different games to play. There's so many different strategies, right? You have deep value investing, you have uh, growth investing, passive active, you have volatility trading, it gets into a lot of crazy, crazy terms and crazy strategies. But at the root of it, you need to ask yourself, when you look at the price of, let's again, let's say Apple, if Apple's trading at 200 bucks a share, what does that mean, right? What does that mean to you as an investor? And I'm going to be a little bit biased here, so I just want to kind of put that as a disclaimer. But at Cube, we run, we run more of a deep value shop. That means we believe that $200 share price we're seeing on Apple is indicative of the present value of future cash flows. More layman's terms, we're basically just quantifying, we're calculating what's the amount of cash that Apple's going to bring in uh, five, 10 years down the road, and then eventually in perpetuity, right, into infinity. So personally, again, with, with uh, bias disclosed, I'm a deep value investor. What I always do before looking at a stock is I value it, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, again, let's take Apple. So I'm going to build a discounted cash flow model based on a free cash flow perspective. And free cash flow to everybody is essentially taking the company's net income, what they earned, adding back some non-cash charges like depreciation, and then subtracting off uh, reinvestment. And what that essentially gives you is the cash that's left over to investors. In other words, it is your, your potential dividend that you can receive from investing in this company. 
So when I forecast a company's cash flows, I need to forecast all those things, right? I need to forecast its depreciation expense, 2021, 2022, 2023, on and on and on. I need to capture the reinvestment rate, what are they going to invest in capital expenditures, right? Property, planning, equipment. Maybe they're coming out with a new iPhone, right? Uh, that they need a lot more manufacturing facilities to, to, to uh, produce. So I'm going to forecast that in my own model. And at the end of the day, eventually you're going to come to an intrinsic value. You're going to come to a price that you believe, yeah, Apple, based on reasonable estimates, reasonable assumptions, this is what the stock should be worth. Now, let's say my intrinsic estimate is 250, 250 bucks a share. And right now it's trading at $200 a share. Well, no, obviously I'm going to buy the stock, right? Because according to me, it's 250 bucks. And again, this is, this is where it gets into the kind of harder bits to justify with devalue investing, right? You need to be able to justify each of those inputs that you place, right? How do you know that Apple's going to reinvest $2 billion in 2023, right? Management doesn't even know that necessarily. So you got to go through the whole qualitative side now to support these judgments, right? You got to look at what has management been doing historically, right? Is there a new CEO? Is there a new management team that's coming in that's going to have this whole new reinvestment philosophy? Or are they doing some M&A, some uh, acquisition of a, a new vertical business that's going to drive growth in this area and whatnot? So it gets into a lot of qualitative questions that is used to justify the quants. So to me, you need the quantitative perspective and the qualitative perspective to justify your intrinsic value. But what's also really interesting is, I'm, I'm assuming most people took FIN 301 here, so you'll understand just, uh, uh, you know, your, let's say your, your Gordon growth model, right? You have your dividend in your numerator, your D1, and then divided by R minus G, right? So you know what a dividend is for Apple. It's just on their financial statements. We have statistically valid uh, models for R for a discount rate, CAPM, for example. Um, and we know what its current price is, right? P0. So the only variable we haven't figured out is G, is growth. So what can you do? Well, use simple algebra and figure out what growth is, right? Uh, Apple's $200 uh, price tag, solve for G. And then you can see what is the market actually pricing their dividend growth rate at. This is a whole nother way to value a stock, right? I now know that, say, solving for G, the market is wanting to see a 5% growth um, and their dividends into perpetuity. Well, historically, if they've been growing their dividends at, at 12, 15%, is it going to be undervalued or is it going to be overvalued, right? That's, that's the question. Well, it's going to be undervalued, right? Because they've been growing their dividend way more than the market is requiring them uh, to, to support this $200 pr uh, price tag. So obviously you can tell I'm this deep value guy because I went into a massive rant, but the overarching thing that I want people to take away from this is at this point in our life as a student, we're, gonna, we're not going to have enough money to invest necessarily into individual stocks. We're going uh, to be buying different financial instruments like ETFs, right? Exchange traded funds, which we'll talk about later. Um, but if you get into this realm of actually pricing an individual stock, you're, you're looking to buy a position in one individual stock. The way to go about it is learning valuation. You really want to hold on to the valuation principles because valuation is the only game you can play where you can earn a decent rate of return, but you can also sleep well at night, right? If Apple goes below its intrinsic value, well, it's not necessarily that big of a deal, right? It's just market noise in my opinion, right? I know that Apple is worth this amount, so I can hold on to that and I can have sweet dreams. So uh, that's, yeah, that's kind of my rant. Hopefully that, that helps.
No, it's, it's very helpful. I'm, I'm sure our viewers are definitely going to take a lot away from this podcast. We're actually running out of time here, so we're just going to wrap it up. We wanted to thank you for coming onto the show today and, and explaining everything you know, given that you're in a position to actually utilize these trading strategies and, and everything that you've talked about today in order to actually make returns for people who decide to invest with Cube. Did you have any other final comments you wanted to add? Yeah, I, I would just say for anybody out there, uh, learn what a, learn about your TFSA, contribute to your TFSA. Uh, look out what an ETF is, uh, search that up. The best thing you guys can do right now in your position with a long-term investment horizon is literally just to invest in the S&P 500 with maybe a couple aggregate bond index on the side to you know, get a better risk-adjusted return. But really focus on those two things. And if you contribute, you're disciplined on a monthly basis, you'll be able to have a comfortable retirement. That's fantastic. I'm sure our viewers are going to really, really appreciate that advice. Well, thanks again, Nick, for coming on. To our listeners, thanks for listening and make sure you guys tune into our social media and we'll see you next time.